titled Housing Advocacy for Landlords. And first, I would like to introduce each of our speakers today, starting with Chris Sakati. Chris Sakati is a partner at Broderick Bancroft and Sakati and presents landlords and tenants in Sorry, and represents landlords and tenants in housing-related matters in Boston and the surrounding communities. Chris graduated from Dartmouth College and Northeastern University School of Law. Following law school, he worked as a litigator at a large law firm in Boston until starting his own practice in 2010, which focused exclusively on landlord-tenant law. He joined Broderick Bancroft in 2017 and became a partner of Broderick Bancroft and Sakati in 2019, where he continues his focus on residential and commercial landlord-tenant law. He was named by the Boston Bar Association as a 2012 to 2013 public interest leader. He was co-chair of the Boston Bar Association Solo Small Firm section from 2015 through 2016, and was named the Rising Star in 2015 through 2017, and a Super Lawyer by Super Lawyers in 2018 through 2021. In 2021, he was named a top real estate lawyer by Boston Magazine. Secondly, I'll be in introducing Adam Sermon. Adam Sermon is a solo attorney practicing in real estate litigation, including landlord-tenant law, boundary disputes, zoning appeals, and foreclosure law. He's an instructor of mass landlords and a member of the City of Baldwin Zoning Board of Appeal. Thirdly, we have Monique Aziza. Monique joined Thorpe BLP as a long-term temporary staff attorney in March 2021. She has worked on the COVID Vixen Legal Health Project and under the new Vixen Legal Aid Grant. She represents landlords that occupy and own a two or three multifamily home. She is, graduate, she is a, a graduate of the University of Delaware and American University Washington College of Law. Next up, we have Donna Cohen. Donna started her career 40 years ago as a litigation attorney with the law firm of Gilman, McLellan, and Hanlon. During her active tenure, she concentrated on general civil litigation and landlord-tenant law. She recently returned to the landlord-tenant practice when she joined the Voluntary Lawyers Project as a consulting attorney under the eviction defense program with the responsibility to create implement and supervise the role, the role out of a new program directed specifically toward providing access to legal, financial, and educational resources to low-income eligible small landlords. She supports and is an advisor to numerous charitable organizations, such on the board of several nonprofit organizations, speaks nationally and internationally on issues of diversity and inclusivity in sports. Although she resides elsewhere, she calls Fieldwalk 59 at Fenway Park home. Lastly, we have Crystal Bernier. Crystal is the legal clinic director at the Hampton County Bar Association in Springfield, Massachusetts. She manages all aspects of the Hampton County Legal Clinic. This includes overseeing existing pro bono programs, developing new pro bono opportunities, increasing volunteer participation, seeking and diversifying program funding, writing grants and grant reports, providing educational training and mentoring opportunities, engaging in community outreach, and partnering with local businesses justice systems stakeholders and organizations to identify and address unmet community legal needs. We have a great panel up here for you today. And that being said, we're gonna get started with our first presenter, who is Christopher Sakati. Oops, Donna, really get muted. <laughs> I actually am going to um, start to introduce the volunteer Lawyers Project, give you a little bit of information about our project and our program before we turn it over to our esteemed colleagues um, who will do our education piece. Um, thank you, Noah, and thank you to Ido Chorm, who is the Volunteer Lawyers Project Outreach Marketing Coordinator. You can't see her on the screen, but she was instrumental in putting this program together. The Boston Bar Association 
each of our colleagues who you'll hear from, um, and you for taking the time to listen, to learn about our program, and to learn a little bit from each of our colleagues who are spending their time. So who is Volunteer Lawyers Project? In case you haven't yet heard of them, they've been around for over 40 years. They provide service to um, and access to justice to low-income um, constituents in multiple areas of the law. They've been focused in Boston for all of these 40 years until um, the, the pandemic hit and the eviction diversion initiative was created where the Volunteer Lawyers Project was designated to create a program for advocacy for low-income owner-occupied two and three family mom and pops. And they were encouraged and they have made that, made that uh, program statewide. Not the least of its success is the people on this Zoom, our partner University of Massachusetts School of Law Justice Bridge Program and the Hamden County Legal Clinic. Um, so here we are in a statewide project for its very first time. And I wanted to give you a little bit of an idea of exactly who our clients are. Think about the elderly woman that may live in a two or three family home. English is a second language. She lives based on the income that she gets from rent, which she uses together with her pension to pay her mortgage, to maintain her property, to maintain the property of a tenant who may live next door to her, with whom she has probably shared a driveway, a front porch, a backyard for many, many years, and at this point is unable to pay her mortgage, unable to collect rent, unable to pay her bills, and unable in many circumstances to be able to understand the system, the opportunities, and the fact that every single day, rules are changing when it comes to the landlord-tenant uh, program. Can we go to the next slide, please? Noah? Thank you. So the program we put together very quickly is completely virtual. It serves all six courts in the entire state. So if you are inclined at the end of this program to help us out, we can figure out a way for you to do that from the comfort of your own computer at any time during the day. A lot of our clientele work during the day and are available in the evening. So we can accommodate any time. We did our program in a bunch of different ways. We've created, we've created a way to find our clients by outreaching. And that outreach comes from reviewing our dockets, uploading it into a virtual system, reaching out to those who have court appearances and encouraging them either by email and also by telephone to sign up to get one-on-one -on -one legal advice, which used to be called lawyer for the day, but we now call it one-on-one -on -one legal advice, or help with submitting an application for assistance, getting rent from a tenant or uh, mortgage assistance or utility assistance. We also provide an opportunity for limited assistance representation, which would be a piece of a case. Maybe it's the advice, maybe it's the preparation of a notice to quit. Maybe it's the advice on some cases that we are seeing right now, which are 
uh, behavior cases, inability to gain access to an apartment, to be able to do repairs. And last, we have created, and some of which you'll see today, um, educational materials and resources for them. So as you listen, please keep in the back of your mind the people that we serve, the people who are we, we are reaching out to to give assistance to, and consider whether you might be inclined to help us. The educational program starts now. I will see you again before we conclude, but thank you for listening to a description of our program. Chris? Good afternoon. So I'm gonna start this off um, and talk a bit about the different kinds of evictions um, and the different reasons why you might pick one approach over another. And I think this is really one of the most crucial, probably the most crucial steps in the eviction process because there are a lot of different implications for which kind of case you bring um, in terms of what you would eventually need to prove as a landlord um, and the potential strengths and weaknesses of the case. Next slide, please. So there are three um, types of cases in Massachusetts. Um, the first, and, and I would say most common by a large margin, are non-payment cases. Um, and, and as is probably pretty obvious, these are cases um, that a landlord brings when a tenant um, is behind in their rent, either um, you know, not paying or making partial payments, um, not current. And this, um, I'm going to sort of address in detail each, each kind of, each one of these um, and talk a little bit more about the, the pros and cons of each. Um, the second kind of case is a no fault case. Um, and this is a case where you're not necessarily alleging that a tenant did something wrong, but you are um, seeking possession as a landlord. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that as well. And then the last type of case is a fault or, or a cause case. And this is a case where a landlord is alleging that a tenant did something wrong, violated a term of a lease, um, or did something illegal. Next slide, please. Could you switch to the next slide? There you go, thank you. Um, so for non-payment cases, um, as I said, these are, are the most common. Um, and this is the kind of case that a landlord would bring if they um, you know, would like to get a tenant current. Um, and so a, a common resolution in a case like this is a repayment agreement. So a landlord does a, a notice of termination um, gets a tenant into court after filing a, a summons and a complaint, and then the parties at mediation enter into an agreement whereby the, the tenant will make certain payments to get current and will agree to, to keep paying their rent going forward. Um, and sometimes that can include an application for third-party funding. Um, there's a lot of that right now um, during COVID. Um, this is not a great case to bring if you really want a tenant out. Um, if you really want possession, a non-payment case is not very strong because if it, your, your complaint as a landlord is that rent is owed. And if the tenant pays the rent, then you may not have a case. Um, you know, so that's something to keep in mind, but it is a very good case to bring if the thing you wanna do is get a tenant current, current and onto a court enforceable agreement. 
the thing that you need to, to remember in a case like this is a, a very important law in Massachusetts, um, chapter 239, section 8A of the general laws. And what this says is in a non-payment case, a tenant is allowed to bring a counterclaim for anything related to the tenancy. And if they win any damages by virtue of that counterclaim, then they may be able to, uh, to retain possession and beat your claim for non-payment. Um, so there's a, there's a bit of a complicated mechanism and I won't get into all the details, but the point to, to be made there is that if as a landlord, you, you, know, you haven't complied with the law yourself, then you may not be able to win possession in a non-payment of rent case. So that's certainly something to keep in mind. Next slide, please. So I'd like to address next a no-fault case. And these are, are common, certainly not as common as a non-payment case, but you'll see them often um, in a, a tenancy at will or a month-to-month -month tenancy where there isn't a lease. Um, such a tenancy could be terminated at the end of the next month by either party for any reason or no reason, so long as it's not discriminatory or retaliatory on the part of the landlord. Um, and so a no-fault notice is simply saying you're a tenant at will, your tenancy will be terminated at the end of the next month. Um, and you, you, a landlord isn't necessarily alleging that a tenant did something wrong. There could be um, problems in the tenancy and maybe that's why the, the landlord wants to end the tenancy, but there doesn't necessarily need to be. Um, it could simply be that they want the unit back, they're gonna do a renovation or they want a family member to move in. Those are all common reasons. And a resolution of this kind of an agreement, uh, of, of eviction case typically is an agreement to vacate. Um, that, that could be a potential resolution. Sometimes they're resolved by an agreement that a tenant stays, um, but if the landlord is looking for possession, eventually a landlord could get possession. Um, an important thing to note about a, a no-fault case is it's not, a non-payment case, but money can be part of it. And so a landlord has a right, regardless of what kind of case they file, to say, oh, and by the way, the tenant owes some unpaid rent, um, and so I'm going to seek that as well. An important thing to keep in mind with this kind of an, a no-fault case is that, that that law I mentioned before, Chapter 239, Section 8A, or you'll often hear people just refer to it as 8A, that law applies here too. And so again, if you as a landlord are going to court and you violated the law, um, then you, um, you may end up losing the case if the tenant has a good counterclaim potentially. So that's something to keep in mind. And next slide, please. So the last thing, the, the, the last kind of case that I wanna talk about are fault or cause cases. And as I mentioned before, this is the kind of case that you bring when a tenant has done something wrong, um, whether it's a violation of the lease, whether it's something illegal, or if there isn't a lease, whether it's just something you know, that, that's clearly wrong, you know, harassing someone, damaging property, something that a judge would find problematic. 
Um, and a fault case is often resolved with a behavior agreement. The tenant will agree not to do the thing the landlord is complaining about, um, and that becomes a court order. And so long as they comply, that resolves the case. Um, you could also, as a landlord, insist on an agreement to vacate or go to trial. Um, again, in this kind of a case, rent could be an issue, but it's not the basis of the case. And so if, it, if you have a, you know, illegal activity and you bring a cause case, you could also say that the tenant also owes money and you're seeking that. In this kind of a case, um, a tenant cannot bring counterclaims and section 8A that I've mentioned before doesn't apply. So it's a very strong kind of case if you're seeking possession, provided that you can prove the allegations that you're making. So an important thing before you bring this case is to make sure that you have good arguments and good evidence to support the allegations you're making. If you do, then you likely could win a, at, at trial if a judge you know, agrees that those, those violations are, are, are serious ones. Um, and if so, a tenant doesn't have the right to bring a counterclaim and they can't defeat the action just by, by seeking damages by counterclaims. A tenant can though bring some limited defenses like the, the case is retaliatory or discriminatory and a tenant in any of these cases can always um, bring up a procedural defect as a defense. And that means they could argue that you made some kind of a mistake in, in the procedure that you followed in bringing the case. Um, so that's something to consider. And what, I, what I'd like to um, talk about next, if, if, if you could show the next slide, is the burden of proof that a landlord has. Um, as a landlord, you're the one who's bringing the case. Um, and so you have the burden of proving to a judge, if the case goes to trial, um, the evidence that you need to, to prevail. And so this, um, this next slide points out sort of the, the, the principal things that you would need to show to win as a landlord. It's called a, a prima facie case, um, but it's really just what you have to show. Um, you know, for a non-payment and, you know, for any of these cases, you need to show that you're the landlord and that there was a tenancy of some sort. And then for non-payment, you need to show um, what the amount of rent is, that the tenant didn't pay that, um, and what's the amount that they owe. And, that, and that's a pretty simple case. For a no-fault case, you just need to show that there was a tenancy of some sort and that it ended, either by termination or because a lease expired on its own. And then if you're seeking rent, you would also show that rent is owed. Your burden of proof as a landlord for, for a cause case is the most difficult because you need to prove the allegations. So if you're saying they did something illegal, you need someone, either the landlord, a property manager, a police officer, a witness, a victim, someone to testify to the things that you're saying the tenant did wrong. And then in every one of these cases, you need to show um, that the tenancy was properly terminated um, with a notice to quit or, or a notice to, to, to vacate. Um, and a very important thing that I wanna close with is that when you're bringing a case and you're deciding which one of these to bring, you, know, you need to think strategically about what evidence you have um, 
what things can you prove and what is the outcome that you're looking for. And a very important thing to keep in mind is that once you pick that strategy, you need to stick with it. And by that, I mean, you can't have an inconsistent basis for the case between your notice to quit and the complaint that you file in court. If you do do that, that could make your case subject to dismissal. So you really want to give this a lot of thought at the beginning, pick a strategy, and then stick with it. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Um, so I'm going to dive into the next part of um, this presentation. Uh, the first step before you can even file uh, your eviction case is to terminate the tenancy. Um, so you do that by serving uh, what's called a notice to quit or otherwise known as a notice to vacate. You can go on to the next slide. Uh, so what I've got here on the screen for you um, is a template of a notice to quit. I've used a notice to quit for um, non-payment of rent. Um, it was the case before COVID uh, that you could serve a 14-day notice to quit for non-payment of rent um, because of some of the legislation and the standing orders that have come out uh, since COVID. Uh, it is now a 30-day notice to quit uh, for non-payment of rent, for non-renewal of rent, um, and for uh, what's called the four-cause uh, eviction that Attorney Sicardi just went over. Uh, so the, the first thing that's important to have on here is to get your dates right. Uh, when you serve the notice to quit and also when you are notifying the tenant of uh, their vacate date. So at the top of the letter here in blue, you see the date. Um, I always suggest to clients that um, they mark it the first of the month. Uh, you are going to serve the letter before the first of the month, but I um, suggest that they date the letter the first so there's no confusion. Um, so say you were pursuing um, an eviction and wanted to send a notice to quit um, you know, as soon as possible. It's the 15th today. You would uh, date this letter April 1st. And then down where it says vacate date in the first uh, paragraph there, you would do the last day of April. And I don't have my calendar in front of me if it's a 30 or 31 day month, uh, but you would make sure that it's there. Um, and I say a full um, rental period, uh, even though it says a 30 day notice, I think the best practice for landlords is to make sure that you're giving a full rental period, um, so a full month. Uh, so that's why I say to date it for the first of the month and the vacate date the end of the month. The other thing that's important to include in your notice to quit here um, is your reason for the eviction. Uh, again, as uh, Attorney Sicardi had said in uh, his portion of the presentation is that the reason is really important and it has to be consistent uh, with what you'll fire, file later, um, the summons and complaint in your case. Uh, so here, the reason for the eviction is um, failure to pay rent. Um, and with the failure to pay rent, you're also um, gonna wanna include a ledger of the amounts that, they, that have been unpaid. Um, for something, for a notice to quit for lease violations, you're gonna wanna note specifically um, the lease violations that are occurring and refer back to paragraphs in your lease. 
for non-renewal of lease or ending a month-to-month uh, -month tenancy, you are just going to state that as the reason, that I am choosing not to renew your lease. I am choosing not to renew your month-to-month -month tenancy at will. And you can go on to the next page. Okay, um, so some other things that should be included in the notice to quit is uh, if this is the first time that your tenant has um, gotten behind on their rent, you need to give them what's called a right to cure. Um, so you need to give them the opportunity to pay up what they owe you. So that's what that first paragraph on this page um, is getting to here. And if it's there, um, if it's only a partial payment, um, or uh, there is included in here what's called a reservation of landlord's rights. Um, so in cases where you don't have non-payment of rent and it's just say a, a non-renewal of tenancy, um, you're going to wanna put in there that they are, your tenant is still responsible if they choose not to vacate and to stay, um, they're still responsible for paying um, for their use and occupancy. And it's important that you um, change the term that, that's being used there is any money that they give you is for use and occupancy of the unit only. It's not being accepted as rent because you don't want any confusion that you're trying to reinstate the tenancy. You are clearly ending the tenancy. The additional uh, paragraphs here, the third paragraph there is just an opportunity um, to give your tenant um, some negotiation. If you, if there are reasons for ending the tenancy that have come up, but otherwise this is a good tenant that you could, um, you know, prolong or uh, keep their tenancy as long as they address the issues. You're giving them the opportunity for mediation right here in the letter. And then the last uh, paragraph there is important. Um, for those uh, landlords who have Section 8 tenants or receive any kind of subsidized uh, rent program, you need to just include in your um, notice to quit that even if they sign a new lease, that's for um, the, uh, complying with the subsidy program. Again, it's not um, with the intention of reinstating their tenancy. And you can go on to the next page. Okay, so specifically for non-payment of rent cases, so this, this form right here does not apply to uh, non-renewal or for-cause cases. This is just for non-payment of rent. Along with the notice to quit, you also have to serve uh, what's called an attestation form. And you can download that from mass.gov. And it's pretty self-explanatory. Um, again, on mass.gov, uh, there is an instructions form as well that will walk you through uh, what each of these sections mean. Um, but basically the first one is saying that your tenant either has or has not given you a declaration form that says that um, you know, they're not paying rent um, as a result of you know, something that's affected them as a result of the pandemic. The second part is a little bit um, more complicated. You're really going to want to read through those instructions to see if you are or not a covered dwelling. Um, it's been my experience that most clients are not a covered dwelling. Um, it's specific to uh, certain housing vouchers. 
um, under certain programs, and it has to be a federally backed mortgage um, that the property is under. And then the last one is you are just stating whether or not there are any written or oral agreements between you and the tenant. Go on to the next page. All right, so just um, a quick checklist of the things that we've talked about. You're going to want to date your uh, notice to quit the first of the month and the vacate date the last of the month. And though you're dating the letter the first of the month, you are going to want to um, bring it to the sheriff's office or to a constable to serve that notice to quit before the first of the month. So again, if we're looking to serve um, our tenant with a notice to quit as soon as possible, you're going to date your notice to quit um, on April 1st, but you can bring it to the sheriff's office or to the constable to serve as soon as possible. You're also going to state the reason for the eviction. We're going to have a paragraph uh, with a reservation of your landlord rights saying that any amounts are for use and occupancy only. And if it's a non-payment case, you're also going to have a right to cure in there and the attestation form. Um, just another thing for folks who have uh, Section 8 uh, tenants who receive Section 8 vouchers, along with serving your tenant, you also should be serving the housing provider who provides that voucher. Um, you can either find that in the lease addendum uh, that was signed with the um, voucher program, uh, or you can contact uh, them to ask for a person who's a registered agent to receive service. Okay, you can go on to the next one. All right, so once you have served your notice to quit, you need to wait for it to expire. Um, so in the example we've been using on the very last date of April, um, our tenant should have vacated. And if they haven't on um, May 1st, we can go to the courthouse and we're gonna get uh, what's called a summons and complaint form and fill out that form. Um, and the form is again, pretty self-explanatory. It's gonna ask for your reason for the eviction and you need that reason to match the same reason that you gave on your notice to quit. So if you gave them a notice to quit for non-payment of rent, then that's what you're gonna list as your reason on the summons and complaint. And you're also gonna um, include how much money is owed to you on the summons and complaint. Um, if you're doing a, if you've served your tenant with a non-renewal notice to quit, the summons and complaint is gonna ask you for a reason. You're gonna say failure to vacate after 30 days notice. It's still going to ask you for how much rent is owed. Now, even if your tenant at this point owes you rent or they stopped paying you rent or use an occupancy after you served them with a notice to quit, don't include it on this form. Um, it may confuse the court about what your reason is for the um, eviction. Um, you will have an opportunity at the um, end of your case um, to make claims for damages, um, or you can also ask the court um, once you receive an eviction to transfer it to the civil docket um, if you have claims for money uh, against your tenant as well. And again, for um, for non-payment cases, there is another form that you have to uh, fill out along with your summons and complaint, and it's an affidavit. Um, the affidavit is similar to the attestation form. You're just including um, checking off the box here about whether or not your tenant has filled out the declaration form. 
And you can go on to the next slide. So again, checklist for the summons and complaint. Uh, you're gonna wait until the notice to quit expires. You're gonna go to the courthouse to get the summons and complaint form. And to make sure your reason um, is consistent with that that was listed on your notice to quit. Then you're also going to serve the um, summons and complaint through the sheriff as well. Uh, once you get the sheriff or constable's uh, return of service, you can then file your summons um, with the court. Um, and then again, as I said, with non-payment cases, you're also gonna wanna make sure that there's additional attachment of the affidavit of compliance. And that's it. Um, I will continue the next portion. Uh, my tenant is damaging the property, uh, stopping bad tenant behavior and getting access to the unit. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, in 1973, uh, Boston Housing Authority versus Hemingway was decided, um, which laid the foundation of all tenancies, um, as now that there has to be a habitable or livable dwelling. Uh, tenants uh, could now withhold rent if repairs are not made in the unit. Um, the burden is now on the landlord to meet the state's habitability standards. Um, prior to this, case, the landlord-tenant relationship was privately regulated. It was um, solely between the tenant and the landlord. Um, in this case, um, brought about regulation. Um, tenants um, were afforded to, um, such as protection against unlawful access and having a habitable apartment. Next slide, please. Uh, landlords are required to keep the place in a good uh, condition, um, which means that um, they have to, uh, landlords must follow housing and building safety codes, which affect um, health and safety. Uh, you have to make repairs uh, reasonably within a reasonable amount of time. Uh, you have to keep common areas uh, reasonably safe, such as the foyer or the porch. Um, you also have to make sure that the plumbing, heating, uh, air conditioner, gas, and electricity are all working properly within the unit. Next slide, please. Uh, I have a list here of the of different uh, electricity, gas, plumbing that is needed to make sure that a tenant unit is considered fit and habitable. Um, the landlord is required um, to make sure that all the repairs are made and they have to do whatever is reasonably necessary uh, to make sure that the premises maintains um, a, a, a fit and habitable condition, um, which, which includes um, uh, appliances that are even supplied by the landlord. The landlord and tenant uh, may agree um, for the tenants to only do certain repairs but it's, um, it's, it's on the landlord to make sure that it's actually completed um, because landlord is unable to actually evade um, their responsibilities. Uh, for instance, if a landlord and a tenant uh, agree in writing that the landlord will, um, that the, I'm sorry, the tenant will make repairs, the landlord is still ultimately responsible for making sure the premises are in a fit and habitable condition. 
Next slide, please. Um, okay, so um, I did stress that um, repairs need to be made in a timely fashion. Um, so in case of emergency, um, I know that as getting a plumber or someone to immediately come, but still trying to be cognizant of the tenant's time. Um, uh, generally, I would suggest um, showing up between 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. for regularly scheduled services, um, or sometimes it might be in the lease agreement between the parties. Um, generally, after hours um, between 9 and um, between 8 p.m. and 9 p.m., I would try to um, make sure that you have that in writing um, and to, uh, for a landlord to announce before they enter the unit. Next slide, please. Okay, um, so if for behavioral issues, I would suggest getting a TRO. A TRO uh, is an order from the court that orders your landlord um, permit your landlord to legally enter the premises, the tenant's unit to make repairs or stop bad behavioral issues. Uh, for instance, uh, you might want to weatherize your home um, to reduce the energy consumption and you need a home audit. Uh, I would suggest um, scheduling something with your tenants to see, um, to weatherize your home. But if your tenant denies access, you might need to file a TRO so that you can um, access unit and have the audit done to weatherize your home um, and, um, or to restore quiet enjoyment to your home. Uh, so if you have a tenant that's loud and noisy constantly and this disrupts your own peace or own quiet time in your own home, then you can seek um, a temporary restraining order to restore quiet enjoyment to your home. Uh, next slide, please. Um, you can file um, a, a temporary restraining order with two forms. Uh, one is called a verified complaint. Another is called a statement of material facts. And uh, that's depending on which housing court you're going to. But the purpose of the statement of material facts or the verified complaint is to tell the judge what the tenant has done and ask the court um, for what you're requesting, either uh, to permit access to the to the unit or to restore um, quiet enjoyment to your home. Um, on the form, um, you would select, um, there is, should be a select to name of, for the county you live in. You would write your name um, as the plaintiff because you're the person bringing the party and the tenant's name or, or multiple names for defendants if necessary. Um, and you would write the name of the court where you're filing uh, the complaint. Um, the docket number can be provided by the uh, clerk when you file the case. Uh, next slide, please. Okay. Um, there are cases where um, you are successful in actually getting um, a TRO against your tenants. Um, but I have had cases where a landlord um, still needed to file a motion to enforce uh, because a tenant did not comply. So um, if the, uh, the purpose of the motion to enforce is to uh, enforce the previous temp, uh, 
TRO that the judge allowed and to let the judge know that the, the tenant has still remained non-compliant with the previous order by the same court. Um, okay, thank you. Well, I'm gonna first talk about the uh, common tenant defenses and counterclaims. So in any sort of an eviction case, a tenant uh, can and is almost certainly going to raise some sort of counterclaim or some sort of defense to an eviction case. Um, I think it's nearly impossible to have any sort of eviction where that, that won't happen. There's largely two reasons for that. Um, Massachusetts is kind of an informal, informal rule in summary process that there's a relaxed pleading standard for tenants. They get a lot more leeway than attorneys do when it comes to filing an answer and counterclaim. So it's pretty easy. Uh, we refer to it as check the box because tenants have or usually have model forms that they very easily can select those defenses and, and counterclaims. And the second is that we just have very tenant friendly laws in Massachusetts that just make it very easy for tenants to, to assert different claims in cases. Like I said, it's nearly impossible to get rid of all of those claims and defenses, but your job is to try to limit your client's exposure as much as possible and prepare them for the consequences of, of going forward and the best way to kind of get your client in and out of one of these cases as, as easily as possible. Next slide. The acronym that I use, that I, I, my kind of checklist for every new client, some landlords can't understand renting. These, in my opinion, are the five most popular topics to go over with any sort of landlord. This will be about 90, 95% of the potential defenses or claims will relate to one of these five different areas. Next slide. So biggest of all, in my opinion, is security deposits. Um, first thing I always check with a, a landlord before I'm starting an eviction is I ask them if they took a security deposit. And I ask them if they follow the law. And they tenant, the landlord will either come back and say, yep, I finished, finished, you know, I followed the law, I did everything to the core, or there'll be a pause and they'll, eh, I'm not really sure, I made a mistake. That's okay. What you need to talk to the landlord about, and the third question is you have to explain to the landlord and ask them, do you have the security deposit and are you able to return it if the tenant demands it? So the rule on security deposits, it's 18615B covers every portion of the security deposit that you could possibly imagine from accepting, holding, to return it. Landlords can very easily make a mistake with that. I think most small landlords especially do make mistakes in the process. The rule of thumb is that if they make an error with it before, while the tenancy is going on, the tenant, if they demand it, the good thing for the landlord, if the tenant raises a claim about it, the landlord can re return it right away. And if they return the security deposit, that's their get out of jail free card. So that's one thing to be very mindful about it before you start an eviction, make sure they have the deposit and they're ready to return it if the tenant comes forward with some sort of claim about it. This is incredibly important for low-income landlords because a low-income landlord may have been, you know, for whatever reason, may have been tempted to use a security deposit or they may not have, have it set aside in the proper account. If a tenant raises a claim like this, they're going to lose their case almost certainly, and they're going to get whacked with treble damages and attorney fees. So you want to make sure you clear that beginning. If they don't have a deposit, they, they need to get that before even starting the case. Next slide. Other area that comes up is last month's rent. It's not, these claims aren't as common as security deposit claims. We're starting to see a little bit more of them. Biggest issue usually is a landlord's failure to pay yearly interest on the last month's rent. Majority of landlords, in my opinion, don't pay this for whatever reason. 
Case law says that this money is due if the landlord in fact actually deposited the last month's rent or set it aside. If they spent the last month's rent, if they, if they went out and they used it or they don't have it escrowed, there is a line of cases that suggests very strongly that there is no interest due to the, the um, tenant. So you can take a look at this and kind of make a decision. The safest approach would be to return all of the interest up front if there's any question about it. But I see these, these claims come up all the time. I don't think I've ever seen an eviction case go all the way to trial just for last month's rent alone. The interest usually isn't a huge amount. So I don't think these are the most serious matters, but it's just something to consider before starting a case. Next slide. Utilities can be a problematic area um, for landlords, kind of the three big things to keep an eye out and check with your landlord client. You wanna make sure that there's some sort of written agreement for the payment of utilities. This is very common for landlords to have kind of an informal, more of a handshake relationship with a tenant where it's a month to month tenancy, but it's not in writing. The lack of a written agreement for the payment of utilities can be a violation of 93A, and in some cases, depending on the, the court and how they interpret it, it could be a quiet enjoyment, a, a, four, a 186.14 violation. Um, separate, no, uh, no separate metering utilities. This could come up in a circumstance where, for example, a landlord is renting out an apartment. He's renting it room by room, but he says each of the tenants are responsible for like a quarter of utilities or something like that. That would be problematic because each of those rooms are not separately metered for utilities. Anything the tenants are paying for have to be have to be separately metered. And the last is a claim of cross metering. Cross metering occurs in a circumstance where if it can be shown that the tenant's paying for electricity beyond their unit. So if they turn on a light switch and it turns on the, the light the, the light bulb in the unit across, across the hallway, that's a potential cross metering claim. If any of these come up, best thing to do is to speak with the landlord and kind of weigh the options you know, going forward. All of these can be fatal to an eviction case. Um, there's no easy solution. There's really no way to fix it after the fact. The best thing you could do is prepare the, the, the landlord for that and, and, that, and suggest to them that they have to be reasonable in trying to resolve it. Or in the worst case scenario, they may have to be prepared to bring another eviction given that um, one of these things really can't be fixed after the violation has occurred. Next slide. Conditions, um, as we talked about before, as, um, as we went forward to, is that um, a landlord is responsible for maintaining a property. Any sort of non-compliance with the state sanitary code can set a landlord up for problems going later on. Not every violation of the state sanitary code rises to a potential claim. If you look at the state sanitary code, it, you know, nearly every rental property across Massachusetts has some violation of the state sanitary code. So it's really more of a major or significant violation. But the rule of thumb I like to follow too is that if your landlord client is ever cited, if they ever have received some sort of offense or something, um, a report from ISD or from the Board of Health about an, an apartment not being in compliance with um, the local requirements, make sure it gets done as quickly as possible before starting the eviction case. And again, you'd want to weigh it out with the landlord if there is a very serious violation, if there have been very serious violations in the past, that's something you need to speak to the landlord about prior to really going through the case. Next, next slide. And then there is retaliation. Retaliation claims come up in nearly every eviction case. The reason being is that there is a presumption of retaliation that would apply in most cases. The general rule is if the landlord's taken some sort of adverse action, meaning they've served a notice to quit and started an eviction, if they can, if a tenant comes back and says six months prior to that, 
I made a report about some kind of bad condition in the apartment or made some sort of complaint of any sort, there's a presumption that the landlord uh, retaliated against the tenant. So as you can imagine, that six-month window, it's pretty big. It, it's pretty easy to fall under a lot of circumstances. So retaliation does come up quite a bit. The general rule is the tenant's always going to claim that the eviction's retaliatory. Your landlord client is always going to deny it. Your job is to kind of weigh between the two and decide who has the better argument. You want to look at things and determine if push comes to shove, can you show that your landlord has a legitimate reason for doing this eviction other than to stick it to the tenant? So for example, if they're bringing an eviction, no-fault eviction, and the tenant claims, well, you're doing it because I complained about problems in the kitchen that occurred the month prior, you want to sit down with the landlord and really make sure that they have a compelling argument about why they don't want to continue renting this tenant. If they have a relative that needs to move in, I would make sure that you have that relative available to testify. Um, if they claim that they need to do renovations that can occur while the tenant's in there, I would make sure that they've spoken to some sort of contractor or have something lined up. You don't want to be in a position where you can't prove it if this comes up in court. Next slide. So these are the most common defenses and counterclaims. First is the implied warranty of habitability, which we spoke about a little bit before. You can look at the Hemingway case, which we talked about, that kind of sets the standard for it. General rule of the implied warranty of habitability is that it doesn't really consider fault as part of the analysis. So in other words, if the apartment doesn't have heating, the, the, this inquiry, this potential um, area of claim or defense isn't going to look so much at whether or not the tenant, uh, the landlord was at fault at it. It's really just going to look at the end of the day, whether the condition existed and was it serious enough to impact the livability of this apartment. Um, attorney fees are not uh, on their own awarded as part of an implied warranty of habitability um, claim. And um, what else was I going to say about that? Yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the, the gist for an implied warranty claim. Um, general law chapter 186.14 codifies some of the bad behavior for landlords claims for other bad behavior versus utilities, which we talked about as well um, before about those different topics of utilities. And then the co covenant of quiet enjoyment, which is a little much broader than the implied warranty of habitability. Um, it could certainly include bad conditions, but it generally requ uh, requires some sort of willful conduct on the part of a landlord. Uh, a violation of quiet enjoyment can also be more than just a condition. It could be the landlord threatening a tenant, a landlord blasting music or walking by or doing something to interfere with the tenant's, um, tenant's you know, enjoyment of their property. A claim under section 14 comes with attorney fees. There is a statutory minimum damage of at least three months of rent for any sort of claim. Security deposit law, we spoke about that in depth. And then there's chapter 93A. Chapter 93A, unfair and deceptive practices. That's really a catch-all. It includes everything we talked about, plus anything that a, a judge would agree would be some sort of unfair and deceptive practice. Um, the attorney general has very specific regulations of what constitutes that kind of per se violations. So you, you can take a look at that, but the general rule is it will cover pretty much everything you can, you can imagine. Good thing, though, for landlords, especially who may be, you may be representing as part of this through VLP, is that 93A generally does not apply to owner-occupied property. So if your landlord client is living in the property that they're renting, they have a good argument to make that 93A doesn't include, doesn't fall under it, but they certainly would be subject to the other claims as well. Next slide. 
So next topic I'm going to talk about is uh, mediations and agreement for judgment. So in the old days, I'd say before the pandemic, the general procedure for housing court was at housing court, there'd be a trial date. Everyone would sit, come in, we'd be there for a day of trial. Everyone would be waiting for their case and then there would be mediators available. And you know the court would encourage you to meet with a mediator. And sometimes you'd be there all day. You'd be there half a day easily just waiting to get in front of a mediator on the date that you were scheduled for trial. The great thing, one of the few good things about the pandemic and the change of the court system is that housing court now automatically schedules every case for a mediation, which in my opinion is really a long overdue change. It's made things much easier. And it's referred to as tier one. So as soon as you file your case, you file it about a month later, you'll get assigned to a tier one, uh, tier one conference, which is a mediation. And you'll be meeting with someone from housing court. This of course is if you're in housing court. I think district court largely follows the same, the same procedure, but in housing court, you would meet with a housing court specialist who is a trained mediator from the court whose sole job it is, is to see if you, he could help you resolve the dispute with the tenant. It really is a great resource and it's really a great opportunity to try to get the case resolved prior to going through you know, motions, discovery, and then trial. Uh, tenants are defaulted if they don't appear. So now that's the change as well. Before it would just go to trial after, now a tenant actually is defaulted if they don't appear to that. So a couple of tips I, I recommend you always keep in mind is to have your tenant, uh, have your landlord attend the mediation. If you're representing the landlord, they actually don't have to appear, but it's a pretty good idea that they're there, especially because it's all by Zoom. It's very helpful because the landlord um, can be there to offer you know, their input and obviously approve any sort of settlement offer. Um, you don't really want to be in a situation where a tenant throws out a suggest suggestion for resolving the case, but your client's not available to, to uh, accept, not available to speak with, and you can't make a, reach some sort of agreement that day. Also very important is make sure you request a translator if you need it, either for your client or if the tenant needs it as well. If it's, one's not requested and you're up for a, a tier one mediation and one of the parties needs a translator, they're gonna to have to reschedule it. So the easiest thing to do is at least a week before make a written request for a translator. And also as well, request a continuance if you think extra time is gonna help with the case. So if you're trying to negotiate, and, you know, one of the parties needs to, needs to wait on something or there's some good reason for um, trying, to, to, uh, trying to do some sort of a continuance, you could certainly ask it. Generally, you know, 99% of the time, the housing court is very good about just putting you on for another continuing state. So at the tier one uh, mediation, one of two things can happen. If you don't reach a settlement, you'll be assigned to trial. And a bench trial is usually about a month to a month and a half after the tier one event. If the case, also the other thing is it could be settled either through an agreement for judgment or some sort of stipulation. So next slide, please. So your goal in every case for settling a case is to try to reach an agreement for judgment, which where both the landlord and the tenant agree that this is a final binding decision of the case. Um, you can reach it for possession and as well and or for the owed rent of the case. It generally can't be appealed because it is a final decision. Um, generally, it's usually meant to be a one-way street. Usually the goal of an agreement for judgment is to get the tenant to commit to leaving and paying some of the owed rent. You can also word it to allow the tenant to reinstate the tenancy as well. So for example, if a tenant owes so much money and they pay it off in six months, you can um, make some sort of provision where they could go back to becoming the, the landlord's tenant. 
But the rule of thumb is these are one-way streets. It's making a decision. It's not meant to be for the case to be reopened at a later date. Next slide. So a couple of things that you want to consider and whenever you do an agreement for judgment. If your goal is possession, you obviously want to vacate date. So you want a firm date in there by which the tenant should leave. My general rule is I start with one to two months as an offered vacate date. How far I'll go will depend on how what the landlord's willing to do, how strong the case is from the other side, and you know, just generally how, how things go in the mediation. You want to include something about the condition of a unit. The general term most of us use is we request that the apartment, we demand that the apartment be left in broom swept condition, meaning that it's cleaned up. You're not going to get the apartment back in pristine condition, but it should be at least you know, moderately cleaned. You want something in there about nothing, no damage to the apartment, nothing beyond reasonable wear and tear. You want something in there about the tenant removing all their position, possessions, and then some term that you have a right to discard any possessions that are left behind. So if a couple items are left and they aren't taken with them, you, you generally want the right to be able to toss them out on your own. If you're looking to get the rent uh, repaid, you should put some sort of schedule in there for getting the rent repaid on whatever terms that you agree to. And then you should also include a waiver of claims. You have to speak to your landlord about landlord client about this to decide what they're comfortable with. Um, a mutual waiver wipes out claims for everyone. So everyone walks away without other than what's in the agreement itself. You can make it one way. You can insist that the tenant waive their claims, but the landlord doesn't. I have gotten pushback from some housing court mediators about that. So depending on the court you in, they, they may not be comfortable with that, but certainly a waiver of claims should always be considered. And then very importantly, you want to get something in there about a waiver of a stay of execution. We'll talk about this in a minute, but the general rule is a tenant can go to the court and ask for additional time for whatever reason, um, if they feel that they can't be out by the time that's set. You want to get the tenant to waive that, meaning they're not going to come back to the court and ask for that time later on. Um, the rule of thumb, though, is that even if it's in there, the tenant can still file something. You really can't, there's nothing that really prevents any party from filing something with the court. So they can still file it, but at the end of the day, judge, if they see that it's been waived, the tenant has a little harder argument, argument making a convincing statement that they deserve more time when they gave up that right as part of the, uh, part of the agreement for judgment. Next slide. So another thing that I'm starting to see in housing courts, this has become much more popular among the tenants bar, are stipulations. And the idea behind a stipulation is it's not a one-way street. A stipulation allows one of the parties to come back to court if the matter is not resolved. So for example, if the complaint against the, if the, complaint against the tenant is that they're damaging the unit, this, a stipulation might say that you know, they agree not to further do that, but if the tenant goes ahead and does that, the landlord has the option of reopening the case. Um, you have to be careful with these. In some cases, they're worth considering because they can be kind of a, a way to resolve it, especially if you have a tenant that's really pushing back on agreeing to some sort of an agreement for judgment. So there is value in them. But the flip side, of course, is that you, you're back in the same position if the tenant doesn't comply with the matter. So it's something to consider. I, I know the tenant's bar is being, you know, in my opinion, a little bit a, a little bit too concerned about agreements for judgment. I, I think that there's a concern that getting an agreement against their client is a very bad thing. So they're pushing hard with stipulations. Um, one thing that I've done in a number of cases is if I have a case, let's say that the tenant's supposed to leave by a specific date, 
what I've generally done with the, what I've offered is that we'll enter into a stipulation, the tenant, and we'll enter into a stipulation, we file the stipulation, and the tenant also agrees to an agreement for judgment. And if the tenant vacates by the, the, the case, by the time that they're supposed to, the case can be dismissed and that's it. If they don't, then I'm allowed to use the agreement for judgment and file it. So you can use these along with like an agreement for judgment in certain cases. And sometimes that can be kind of a good compromise between the concern of the, of the tenant and your desire to get the case wrapped up for your client. Next slide. So a couple of tips for um, working both with landlords and tenants and trying to resolve these matters. I think probably your most important job is to really you know, be a reality check for your landlord client. Landlords are often very frustrated. They're very confused. They're very overwhelmed with the process and, and rightfully so. But you need to walk them through the cost of the eviction and very importantly, the cost of levying the execution. It's a cost that a lot of landlords don't really consider, but you go through the case and the case is won. You either get an agreement for judgment or you win at trial. If the tenant refuses to leave, you have to do a, a process of physically removing them from the property through a constable or a sheriff. But it can be very expensive. It can easily be anywhere from three to $5,000. And if you're working with a low-income client, that, that can be a lot of money to, to swallow. So it's important to walk them through the costs. Uh, landlords oftentimes, you know, they're really looking for, they may be looking for the, the money that the tenant owes them. You have to explain to them that it's not easy to get a, 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 not easy to get money from anyone, let alone from a tenant. You'd have to take it through payment review and supplementary process. So it's a very important matter to consider. And then very importantly is you have to talk to them that, about the tenant's right to get some sort of stay of execution. I, a lot of times I'll have landlord clients that say to me, I have a perfect case you know, I've done nothing wrong. The tenant doesn't have any claims on me. Why, why would I consider settling? The reason is the tenant can throw themselves on the court and say, for whatever reason, I need more time. They can do that under 239 section nine. They can also do it under the equitable powers of the court. The court generally, um, the, the longstanding rule among the housing courts is that they can believe that they have just general powers to delay an execution if they feel it's necessary. So it's, a court can certainly do that. A court can certainly give a tenant more time. So you have to walk you through a landlord, a landlord on, that, on that possibility and the possibility that the court may just be inclined to give them more time at the end of the day, even regardless of the situation. When you're dealing with tenants, a couple of things to keep in mind. I remind tenants too that even if a tenant wins the case, a landlord can file a new eviction matter. Happens all the time. I include the nurse case, which came out a couple of years ago, which really talks about that very well. Yep, you, you may have made a violation, you're gonna lose the eviction, but you have every right to file it You know, again. I'm working on a case right now, my landlord client did the prior eviction herself, the tenants were able to um, undo it. They were able to vacate one of the judgments. A year later, we're now in the exact same position as before, now a second eviction against the tenants really on the same matter. So it's something to keep in mind with tenants is that you know, tell them, you know, be very blunt with them that you very well could be back in this situation, you know, six months, a year down the line, and you're not necessarily going to be in a much better position later on. For that reason, it may be worth working out an agreement now and avoiding that. Another important point is that eviction cases are now all available online at masscourts.org. I try not to rub this into um, tenant clients. I, I think that it can go south very quickly. So I try not to I, I try not to bring that up, but I will I will I will mention it in passing. That just keep in mind that when you're going to event uh, going to rent down down the line a couple of years from now, anyone can take a look at your case and they could pull it up online. 
my opinion is I think a tenant who works on an agreement with their landlords is in a much better position than one who chooses just to fight it to, to the bitter end. Tell tenants as well that the stay of execution is never guaranteed. The court could give them more time. The court could also say no, no more time, that's it. And then the last point as well, going back to the different, um, different uh, defenses and counterclaims, is that the general rule is there's no duplicative recovery of damages for, te for tenant uh, defenses and claims. So bad conditions, for example, could violate the implied warranty of habitability, quiet enjoyment in 93A. The general rule is the court's not going to allow them to recover in all three of them, only the one that gives them the biggest recovery. So I've seen a lot of tenants and even tenant attorneys that take these and, and you know, believe that they're going to kind of walk away, you know, hit, hitting, hitting all these different claims. It's, sometimes you have to kind of you know, talk a little sense into the tenant. They may be a claim there, but it may not be as much as they, as they think. And I think that's it for my section. All right, so um, this next section is after um, a landlord uh, receives a judgment in their favor. The first question is, when can I have the sheriff move out my tenant? Uh, so we're gonna go over some of that. Um, so after a judgment, there is a, after a judgment is entered, um, which might not always be exactly the same day um, that your um, court hearing was. There is a 10-day appeal period for the tenant. Um, so you have to wait for that 10 days to expire. Um, after the 10 days have expired or during the 10 days, um, the, the tenant can still ask the court um, for what's called a stay of execution. Um, and what that means is they can ask the court um, to put off the execution order um, where, which is the piece of paper basically that move, that uh, the sheriff needs to actually move out the tenant. Um, they can have up to six months at the discretion um, of the judge. And if a uh, tenant has a disability um, or if they are elderly, um, it may be up to, um, 12 months uh, that they have that they um, can stay the execution. So if you don't have a stay of the execution or the tenant does not appeal, um, you're going to file uh, what's called a motion for execution. That's where you ask the court um, for that order that you can give the sheriff to move the tenant out. Once you have that order, the sheriff needs to give uh, the tenant 48 hours notice to vacate and after that 48 hours, that's where the sheriff would be able to move out the tenant. Um, as attorney Sherman was saying in um, the terms to consider in mediation is what happens with the tenant's possessions, right? Is making sure that they take all of their possessions. Um, Cause sometimes it happens that either the tenant will vacate or they'll be forced to vacate um, and some of their personal property will be left behind in uh, the unit. And the landlord is responsible uh, for keeping uh, that personal property uh, stored for at least 30 days and giving uh, the tenant the opportunity to come pick them up. So that's just an overview of some of the things that can happen after judgment. I hope you enjoyed the educational part of this program. And I wanted to recap a little bit 
about our landlord advocacy program before we move on to um, questions and answers. I hope you'll put some questions and answers in the uh, in the Q&A box. Noah will manage and moderate that. The landlord advocacy program is intended for the mom and pops. It's intended for those landlords who share the property. They share the driveway, they share the back porch, they share the front porch. They've lived together for a very long time. The landlords in some cases are unable to pay their mortgage because they're not able to collect their rent. They're not able to get access to an apartment to do repairs. And in some cases, because they haven't collected the rent, they're not able to do the repairs. So consider those who are unable to access and understand the legal process you just heard about that aren't able to protect themselves in some cases from, uh, from tenants who may be making claims against them or who have behavior issues as attorney Aziza had said um, with threats. And, and please think about the options that we have for you to volunteer and be helpful to outreach to go through the dockets with us, to upload it into a system that we have that is completely virtual, to offer maybe 10 or 15 minutes worth of advice on a lawyer for the day program, to take a limited assistance opportunity to help with a piece of a case, to help with an application for financial assistance or mortgage assistance, to be able to supply resources direct people to, um, to legal help. We have mentors, we have training. You've heard from some of our colleagues um, who are superb at what they do. All the services are virtual and a special outreach and thanks to a platform called Legal Squirrel, which we partnered with early on so that we could make it as easy as possible for landlords to be able to secure help and for you to be able to volunteer at a time and in a place that is convenient for you. Um, the last I wanna say is there's a sign up sheet right here on this, um, on this square. Please reach out to us, please help us, help them. They need you, we need you, but they need you more. And I thank you, I thank our colleagues that are on this this uh, portion of our program who have offered their time and I'll turn it back over to Noah to do our Q&A. Hi, good afternoon everyone. And again, just reiterating, thank you so much to our panelists so far for just great presentation. And just looking at the Q&A, no questions have come in so far. They've already been answered. However, feel free we'll give it a second, see if anyone has any questions. And um, yeah, so if you have any questions, feel free to submit them to the Q&A function. And then we'll just give that a second as questions come in. And quick note that the contact information for our panelists is on the current slide. So feel free to um, jot that down. And also, we will be sending a copy of the slides out to attendees as well after the program. And so you, you will have all this information as well. 
me give it another minute to see any additional questions come in. <laughs> but if not, does anyone have any like final thoughts or anything they would like to say with today's attendees or anything of that nature? I would just say I'm, you know, I'm I'm happy <clears throat> to to chat with folks if they have follow-up questions. Um, or if there's anything I can, you know, do to help or explain things, you know, feel free to reach out. Um, for contacting me, email is usually better than phone. <laughs> Just a tip there. Beautiful. But yes, and with that being said, I don't want to keep us here too long. If we don't have any questions, I, I know six questions did come in. And thank you, Chris, for doing all of that work <laughs> of responding to them via chat. <laughs> But, um, but with that being said, again, huge thank you to each of our panelists as well. Thank you to BOP. And again, I will be following up via email with um, these slides. And additionally, you will get an email from me stating that if you would like to be, if you would like to be in contact with BLP going forward, feel free to let me know as well. And we are happy to send information over to BLP so that, so that you're able to be in contact with them as well. And with that being said, I will say have a great afternoon, everyone. Again, thank you so much for attending. And I hope to see you at a future BBA program and a future collaboration between the Boston Bar Association and VLP. Have a great afternoon.